Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians? We'll be looking this morning at Galatians chapter 3. And this time we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. So if you have little kids who are preschool age through third grade, they can meet the ladies in the back for Children's Church. Well, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Galatians that we're calling Gospel Reset. I think many of us have realized that many of the things in our society, in our culture, really in our world, have been forced to do a hard reset lately as we've been forced to think differently about the world around us, how we relate to God, how we relate to other people. And I think that the most important thing that guides us as we enter in this new phase is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the book of Galatians is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 3, we'll begin reading at verse 15 and we'll read through verse 26. This is God's word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might see Jesus. Give us clarity, give us focus, convict us of our sins, comfort us by the power of your grace. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1988, and the Chicago Cubs needed a third baseman. And so they turned their eyes to an eight-year veteran from Boise, Idaho, a man with glasses as big as his heart, a man named Vance Law. 
Vance Law was a solid Major League Baseball player. He spent the first two years of his career with the Pittsburgh Pirates, the next three with the Chicago White Sox, and then three more years playing for the now-defunct Montreal Expos. But the Cubs believed in Law. They believed that Law would take them to the Promised Land. But there was a problem. The Cubs quickly realized that you need more than law to win the World Series. And so they brought in a rookie first baseman, a man named Grace. Mark Grace from North Carolina. And for the next two glorious seasons, the Chicago infield was anchored by law and grace. And whenever a batter hit a sharp ground ball to third base, Vance Law would scoop it up and toss it across the diamond to grace for the out at first base. And when the Chicago Cubs came up to bat, Grace would bat first, batting fourth, and Law would bat fifth because grace always comes before Law. In their first season together, Grace finished second in the Rookie of the Year voting, and Law made his first and only all-star team. In their second season together, Grace and Law led led the Chicago Cubs to the National League Championship Series, where they sadly lost to the San Francisco Giants, who fielded a team devoid of players whose names had deep theological significance. Law and Grace were two different players. They played two very different positions. You should never confuse Law and Grace. But Law and Grace were on the same team. This morning, we're going to talk about the relationship of Grace and Law. Does Grace plus Law equal salvation? Or does Grace plus salvation equal law. To Paul's opponents, a group of false teachers from Jerusalem, they said, first believe in Jesus, second keep the law, and third, you'll be saved. The apostle Paul said, first believe in Jesus, second, you'll be saved, and third, you'll keep the law. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ has so captivated your heart and your mind that it will be your greatest joy to pursue Christ in all you do. Those two different formulas don't represent two different opinions or even two different denominations. They represent two different religions. They represent two opposite ways of thinking about God and the human condition and how we achieve or receive everlasting life. Either we are saved by good works or we are saved for good works. There's no third option. You cannot split the baby. There's no third way to be right with God. On the one hand, the relationship of grace and law is very complex. It involves two men, Abraham and Moses. It involves two covenants, the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. 
it hinges on the meaning of a single Hebrew word, offspring. But on the other hand, it's just two players playing catch. Vance Law and Mark Grace tossing the ball around the infield. Two different players playing two different positions, knowing their roles and working together to help the team win. If you're taking notes this morning, here's the outline. We're going to talk about the relationship of law and grace. And as we do, we're going to ask three big questions about two big covenants. First, we're going to ask the background question, which is, what is a covenant? Second, we'll ask, what's so great about the covenant of grace? And then third, we'll ask, what's so great about the covenant of works? This is the tale of two covenants. It's the tale of one gospel, Abraham and Moses, law and grace. How do they work together? Let's take a closer look. We begin with our first big question, and the first big question is, what is a covenant? That's important to know because Paul mentions it in the opening verse of our passage, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, many definitions of the word covenant have been offered over the years by many great theological minds, but I'm going to go out on a limb and try to give you my own definition of the word covenant. What is a covenant? Here goes. A covenant is a legally binding agreement that defines the relationship of two or more parties. Okay? So it's a legally binding agreement that defines the relationship of two or more parties. In a marriage covenant, for example, two people make a legally binding agreement. Two people stand up before God and the pastor and all the witnesses and friends and family and say, I, state your name, take you, state your name, to be my lawfully wedded husband. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your lawfully wedded wife. Promises. Now, those two promises don't exist in a vacuum. They define the relationship. We're no longer dating. We're married. We're no longer single people. We're a married couple, one family. Think about an adoption covenant. In an adoption covenant, parents make legally binding agreements. I will love you. I will take care of you. I will help you with your math homework when you need help. And that those promises define the relationship. You are now my son. You are now my daughter. We're not strangers anymore. We're not distant family relatives. We're one family. My HOA has a covenant. I agree to pay my HOA fees every year. They promise to cut the grass in the common areas. And I promise not to put a hot tub in my front yard. We have a covenant relationship. Now, some covenants come with visible signs and seals of the covenant. For example, with a marriage covenant, it comes with the covenant seal of a wedding ring. 
When I got married, my wife put a ring on my finger, and that, that ring symbolized her love for me. I put a ring on her finger, which symbolized my love for her. That always and forever love that comes between a husband and a wife in marriage. When someone becomes a part of the church, which is a covenant relationship, that person is baptized. The water is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. It paints a picture. It says, you have been washed by the blood of Jesus. It says, you have died to your old life, and you belong to this new life, the new life of faith, through Jesus in the Spirit. When we come to the Lord's table together, there's, a bre- there's bread and there's a cup. The bread represents the body of Jesus Christ. The cup represents the cup of the new covenant in Christ's blood. When you pay your parking fees at PSC, they give you a sacramental parking sticker. That sticker is a visible sign and seal of the covenant that you made with Pensacola State College. I agree to pay the fee. You agree not to tow my car. With this sticker, I the park. (laughs) Now, not only do covenants come with sanctions, sometimes, or not only do they come with signs and seals, sometimes they come with sanctions as well. Here's what happens if you break the covenant. Here's what happens if you're unfaithful. Here's what happens when you sin. Here's what happens if you don't do the work that I have hired you to do. There's a divorce. There's excommunication. There's a lawsuit. There's firing. This person no longer works for you. There's, there's sanctions there. Now, some covenants are covenants of grace where there's no strings attached. I give, you receive. Unconditional promises define the relationship. Many covenants are covenants of works where there are strings attached. I do my part, you do your part, and those conditional promises define the relationship. Now, in verse 15, Paul uses an example of a type of covenant, a last will and testament. A last will and testament is a covenant of grace because one party gives and the other party receives. All the person who is receiving has to do is believe that the promises are true and they will receive the inheritance that has been given. Think about a human example. If I give my children an inheritance, if I say, I have money for you, it's in the bank, when I die, you can go pick it up. Here's the account number, here's everything you need to receive your inheritance. The only way that they will not receive the inheritance is if they don't believe. If they say, he's probably lying, he's probably not telling the truth, I bet there's no inheritance at all, and so they just simply leave the money in the bank and it remains unclaimed. Which, in my case, for my kids, would be a huge mistake on their part because they would lose out on literally hundreds of dollars. (laughs) All of us are in covenant relationships all the time. And Paul wants us to see that we have a covenant relationship with God. The question is, do you have a covenant of works 
Or do you have a covenant of grace? Law or gospel? That leads us to our second big question. What's so great about the covenant of grace? Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise. Now, this is a, a brilliant argument And it relies very heavily on our knowledge of the Old Testament, specifically the book of Genesis. So let's unpack this a little bit. Now, if you have your Bibles, open your Bible to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, Genesis. We're going to look at chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses. It's so cool. It's amazing. Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read 1 through 3. Now, keep in mind, just as a way of footnote, it references Abram in this text. Abraham and Abram are the same person God changed his name later in the story. Here, he's Abram. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 12, we see that the covenant of grace is so amazing, so great, because it's unconditional. Did you notice all the I will language in this covenant? It's all about what God is going to do unconditionally for Abraham and through Abraham for us. I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. I will bless all the families of the earth through you. Abraham didn't need to do anything in order to receive God's blessing. All he had to do was believe. All he had to do is respond to the promises with faith by leaving his homeland and doing what God had promised to do by going to the place where God had told him to go. Now, when God called Abraham, he was 75 years old. He was a relatively old man. He had lived all of those 75 years as a pagan. He'd lived all those 75 as an unbeliever, all those 75 as a rebel against God. He was at odds with the God of the universe. And yet, God said, Abraham, I love you. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Abraham, I'm going to do things to you and through you that are going to absolutely blow your mind. Why? Because God's grace is unconditional. All we have to do is believe and receive the promises of God. It gets better. Not only is the covenant of grace unconditional, it's unbreakable. 
Now let's fast forward to Genesis chapter 15. Turn over to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, Abraham had started to doubt the promises of God. He said, I'm an old man. How am I supposed to be a great nation? I don't even have one child, much less many children. How is it possible that all the stars of the heavens will be like my children? It seems it's just not going to happen. I'm going to die. My servant, Eliezer of Damascus, is going to be my heir. That's not good. And so God said, let me give you a sign to prove that the promises are true. Go take some animals and cut them in half. Now, does that seem strange to you? It seems a little bit strange to me. I'm an animal lover. I hope some of you are animal lovers. It would freak me out a little bit if God said, go get a bunch of animals and cut them in half. Notice, Abraham wasn't bothered by this at all. He was very familiar with this. What was God doing? Well, in the ancient world, when a strong king made a covenant with a weak king, they would take animals, they would cut them in half, And then the strong king would say to the weak king, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be your protector. If anyone invades your nation, I will stand up for you, I will drive them out, and here's what you're going to do for me. You're going to pay me taxes. You're going to pay pay me an extraordinary amount of money for me to defend you. And here's what happens if you break the covenant. I'm going to cut you in half. And then, to drive this point home, the strong king would make the weak king walk through the pieces as a vivid reminder of the curses of the covenant. Here's what will happen to me if I double-cross the great mighty king. May I be cut in half like these animals. But what happens in Genesis 15? There's a strong king, God. There's a weak king, Abraham, there are animals, they're cut in half, but who walks through the pieces? Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, that's God, passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. God swore on his own life, I will never break my promises to you. I will love you and be faithful to you as long as you live and as long as your children live and your children's children on until the second coming of the Messiah. Isn't that amazing? God's promises are unconditional, and God's promises are unbreakable. Which means it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you will do. Your salvation does not depend on you. Your salvation depends on the mercy of God. Your salvation depends on God's offspring, singular Jesus, the Son of God, the seed of Abraham, who was cut in half to make us part of God's covenant family. That's what happened to Jesus on the cross. Jesus, the covenant keeper, died to save covenant breakers like you and me.
And because he did, we have an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. The covenant of grace is unconditional because Jesus met the conditions. It's unbreakable because Jesus' body was broken on the cross so that we might live. That's what's so great about the covenant of grace. God's promises are for everyone who believes. Third big question, what's so great about the covenant of works? Now, so far, it's not looking so good for our old friend Vance Law. We might be thinking, if grace is so great, why do we even need law on the team? Verse 19, why then the law? Good question. Now, again, it's a very complex argument, so let me summarize it for you. In these verses, Paul tells us three great things about the law. The first thing that's so great about the law is that the law shows us who God is. In verses 19 and 20, Paul gives us this example of sort of a a chain of custody. He says the law came from God through the angels as intermediaries, through Moses to the Israelites, and finally down to us. Now, there's a sense in which the covenant of grace is superior to the covenant of works because there are fewer mediators. It came directly from God to Abraham, from Abraham to us. But that doesn't diminish the fact that the law of God comes to us from God. And because it comes to us from God, it shows us who God is. It reveals his character, what he loves, what he values, what matters to him. If we want to know who God is, we need to look not only at the gospel, we need to look at the law. Who is God? God is one. Paul makes that point in verse 20. Are there many gods? No, there's one. God is one. Are all gods and all religions pretty much the same? No, God is one. Does money make a good God? No, it does not, because God is one. What about fame? What about family? No and no. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And because that's true, we're to have no other gods before him. That's the first commandment. We know this because of the law. Who else is God? He's the author and giver of life. In the sixth commandment, we are taught, thou shalt not murder. God loves life. God gives life. And so it's not ours to take away. Who is God? He's the God who works and he's the God who rests. The fourth commandment commands us to work six days and to rest one day. Why? Because, left to our own advices, some of us would work ourselves to death, and others of us would probably never work at all. And neither one of those things makes for a happy, well-adjusted human being. We need to work, we need to rest. God worked, God rest. We know that because of the law. God respects private property, and he wants us to respect private property. How do we know? The law says, thou shalt not steal. God loves poor people, and he wants us to love poor people. 
Well, how do we know? Because in the law, God said, when you harvest the grain, don't harvest everything that you've planted. Don't harvest everything that grows up. Leave some behind for the poor. That's in the law. God is generous, and he wants us to be generous. How do we know? It's in the law. God says, give at least 10%, maybe more, depending on how you crunch the numbers. Give it away. Give it up as an offering to the church, to the priests, to the poor, for the good of others, so that the world might be blessed through your generosity. That's the heart of God. The law shows us who God is. We don't have to imagine what God is like. We're not blind people sort of groping around in the darkness trying to figure out who God is. It's in the law. The law shows us the beauty of holiness. It shows us the heart of God. But that's not all. The law also shows us how sinful we are. In this passage, Paul says that the law was added because of transgressions. Later, Paul will say that the law makes us prisoners until the coming of Christ. Now, here's what I think he means. Most of us, apart from the law, without God's law, think to to ourselves, I think the world can be divided up into two different types of people. You know, there are good people and there are bad people, and I think I'm definitely one of the good people. I think I mostly keep the law, I mostly keep the commandments, I'm mostly nice to my friends and neighbors, and I try to recycle and do good for other people. The law says, not so fast. The law humbles us by showing us our true spiritual condition. Now, why is that so important? You'll never embrace Jesus as your Savior until you realize that you need to be saved. You will never reach out to God for help until you realize that you need to be helped. The law shows us how sinful we are, and that's a good thing. If we're delusional about who we are, we'll completely miss the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the third thing, the third great thing about the law is that the law prepares us to meet Jesus. Paul says that the law is like a guardian. Some of the old King James versions of this used to translate it schoolmaster. The original Greek word comes from the word that we get get pedagogue, like a teacher or instructor. Here's what I think he means. The law, and especially the ceremonial law, prepares us to meet Jesus because it gives us pictures of what the gospel is and how the gospel works works. When the Israelites sinned, they would sacrifice animals as a way of saying, I have sinned, I deserve to die, but God will accept this substitute. God is merciful and he will allow this perfect, spotless animal to die for me. That's who God is. Now fast forward it to the New Testament. What did John the Baptist say? John the Baptist was essentially the last Old Testament prophet, and when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Where does that language come from? Where did he get that idea? He got that idea from the law. Do you remember the scapegoat? In the Old Testament, there was a a system where if the people sinned, the priest would put their hands on the head of a goat. 
and they would impute the sins of the people to the head of the goat, and they'd give the goat a whack and send them off into the wilderness, and the people's sins would be removed. Off on, the, on its own, the goat would die in the wilderness, and the people would be forgiven. Where did Jesus die? Where was Golgotha? The wilderness. Outside the gates of the city. When Jesus died on the cross, our sins were placed on his head like a crown of thorns. Thorns. What was the curse of Adam and Eve? Thorns. Those thorns were placed on the head of Jesus. He took our sins. He took our shame. And because he did, we are made righteous in the sight of God. All of that comes from the law. People recognize Jesus because of the law. We need the covenant of grace. We need the covenant of works. What's so great about the law? What's so great about grace? What is so great about the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news because it shows us that Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works. He kept the conditions and he endured the sanctions so that we might receive the benefits of the covenant of grace. A forever home, a forever family, a place where the weak are finally strong and the righteous right the wrongs. Law and grace. Grace and law. Two covenants, one gospel. Let's go to God in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for your grace. We thank, that, thank you that you have done for us in Christ what we could never do for ourselves. And also, Lord God, we thank you for the law, which no longer condemns us because of Jesus. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would conform our lives to your word, that we might do things that please you, not so that we might earn our salvation, but because we have see, received grace that is greater than our sins. Hear our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.